0: Hello, and welcome to Holmes, Borden, and the Watson Pavers. This is your host, Chris Dilworth. Thanks for joining me. If you've been listening to this podcast from the beginning, you'll remember that Watson had a theory about the way that Sherlock's father died. He thought it was syphilis, and he said that would explain why Sherlock avoided intimate relations with women. Having witnessed his father's physical and mental decline, Sherlock developed this deep-seated fear of women. It's an interesting theory because it shows this primitive, immature, irrational side to Sherlock when we always think of him as being rational to the point of caricature. And the idea that any woman would lead to his destruction is so irrational, it's laughable, and yet apparently at some level that's what he thought or believed. He pretended that he avoided them because they were irrational and unpredictable, and he said emotions interfere with my ability to reason. But it looks like, in fact, that in many ways, women just scared him. So what we see, not just in the Borden case, but in other cases throughout his career, is there were times once in a great while where women actually caught him off guard, and we saw some unexpected reaction from him. We saw him experience some emotions that we wouldn't have expected him to. And the first example I can think of is the case involving Irene Adler. This is in a memoir entitled A Scandal in Bohemia. And the gist of this incident was that Irene Adler, who possesses a photograph that Sherlock is trying to recover, this woman outsmarts him. He weaves this web and tries to catch her and he puts a lot of time and effort into it and he almost succeeds, but she sees through it at the last minute and she thwarts him. And he's really shocked. He goes to her house with his client and with Watson, thinking he's going to recover the photograph. And she has left him a a letter with a different picture, not the one he wanted back, but a picture of herself. And it says, you almost got me, but I figured out what you were doing. And I've, I've left the country. I'm never coming back. And he's so impressed by this that he asks his client if he can keep the photograph. And the client says, sure, go ahead. And in the future, he always refers to this woman, Adler, Irene Adler, as the woman. And he clearly has some kind of, not just admiration for her, but Watson makes it sound like he's really infatuated with her. It's not clear whether that is there's any sexual or romantic aspect to that, but there may be. But the point is that she's gotten to him. He's not, to his credit, threatened by her. He doesn't get angry about it. He just says wow, that's really impressive. She was more clever than I thought she was. And she's actually gotten the better of me. And it has a huge impression on him. He has this sort of mind palace that he retreats to when he's trying to solve a crime or think things through. And she found her way into it. And rather than feeling threatened, it gets to him. He finds it attractive in a way. The other person that has a huge impact on him, the other woman, is Lizzie. And that's what Watson tells us. But it's in a different way. Adler appealed to his intellectual interests, and but Lizzie touches on the risk-taking side of his personality. And I think these two qualities, the intellectual and the risk-taking, are the ones that he valued the most in himself and that he valued above anything else in other people. You could describe Sherlock as an adrenaline junkie. He hated the humdrum routine aspects of life. That's why he took drugs. That's what he told Watson. And he took other types of risks in order, I think, in part, to escape what he considered to be a boring existence. He didn't seem concerned about people trying to kill him. Obviously, he didn't want to die, but he didn't make any huge efforts to avoid dangerous situations. I don't think it was necessarily so much that he was a tremendously brave person or insensitive to danger. It was the thrill he got from escaping near-death experiences. That's how I would look at it. And then he engages in a bunch of criminal activity on his own. He goes and commits burglaries every so often. Those are reflected in the official records. There are at least three examples of it. In fact, in America, during the Borden investigation, he and Watson, in late August of 1892, they go down to Providence, and in the early morning hours of Sunday, August 28th, Watson acts as the lookout, and Sherlock goes in and burglarizes the office of an attorney named Franklin Owen. Talk about Franklin Owen in an earlier episode entitled Prussic Acid, and I talk about how Lizzie had gone to see him about a week before the murders and had asked all kinds of questions about her father's estate. And I told you I would explain later how we learned that information, and we got it because Holmes burglarized the guy's office, read his notes, and relayed the information to Watson. I mean, think about the risks that he's running. He's in a foreign country. He doesn't have any connections. His brother can't protect him. If he gets caught, he's in big trouble. It's going to mean the end of his investigation, if nothing else. It's probably going to mean prosecution and prison time. And that's true for the other burglaries he commits. It doesn't really matter that he committed those for good purposes, as he would put it, that they were morally justified. He does them as much as anything else because he gets a thrill out of them. And that's interesting because it connects him in a way to Lizzie, and I'll explain that in a minute. Think about how fascinating he would have found Lizzie to be when he sees her willingness to take risks. Because he starts out in this case assuming she's just a two-dimensional, uninteresting person. She's completely at the mercy of Moriarty. She's putty in his hands. But as time goes on, he realizes there's a lot more to her than he had originally thought. And where he gets his thrills out of committing burglaries, she gets them from committing murder. And it makes his risk-taking look tame in comparison. Now, he is, to a large extent, horrified by what she's done, but he's also intrigued by it. And I think in some kind of dark way, he finds it compelling. And remember how in the course of his career, I've talked about it a little bit, and you'd certainly know what I mean when if you've read his official versions, is he loves to lord it over people who are less clever or less daring than he is. And on many occasions, he ridicules or denigrates the police, and sometimes he does it to their faces. And that's what he sees Lizzie doing here as he sits through the testimony of the preliminary hearing. But again, she's doing it when the stakes are much higher. During the course of the preliminary hearing, Knowlton, the prosecutor, reads Lizzie's inquest testimony into the record, makes it part of the evidence of the preliminary hearing. And so Sherlock gets to hear it for himself, and he's astounded at how much she lies and contradicts herself, but never seems to panic. And he comes away thinking that she's intentionally frustrating and taunting and tormenting the prosecutor, Knowlton. She's daring him to catch her, and she's demonstrating her contempt for him and for the police. And in doing that, she shows Sherlock all those qualities that he admires in himself And even though they're exhibited in the context of a horrific crime, they still impress him. And they leave him with some conflicting emotions towards her. He's afraid of her in some ways because she's so dangerous, but he also feels this grudging admiration. And he's fascinated. So it's all these conflicting emotions. And I think there's another aspect or layer to all of this, which is that at some level, Sherlock sees Moriarty as his rival. He's trying to catch Moriarty. Moriarty's trying to stay outside or beyond his reach. Moriarty's clever. Sherlock's clever. Sherlock's trying to protect the world. Moriarty's trying to take advantage of the world. And guess who's caught in the middle? Lizzie. Lizzie sort of becomes the prize. It's as if Sherlock and Moriarty are in some ways competing for her, like a couple of suitors who are trying to woo the same woman. And so this rivalry with Moriarty stirs up all kinds of unfamiliar feelings for Sherlock because Lizzie's involved and those feelings are unsettling, but at the same time, they're exciting. And you get a sense that these three people are kind of playing off of each other in ways that none of them completely understands. And they're all engaged in some type of major risk-taking and there are enormous stakes involved. Mr. Borden's fortune on the one hand and death on the other. Not just the death of Mr. and Mrs. Borden, but possible assassination of Sherlock at the hands of Moriarty or possible execution of Moriarty and Lizzie by the government if they get caught. And of all the people, the three people that I'm talking about in this process, Sherlock's probably the one who's least aware of what's going on in an emotional sense. So it's all interesting to think about how he's attracted to this woman in ways that he doesn't want to be. This cold, calculating woman with her dark and cunning character, and the fact that he is attracted to her, that he is fascinated by her, what does that say about him? Anyway, let's move on and get caught up with what Sherlock was thinking as of September 2nd, 1892, which was the day after the preliminary hearing ended. That day, they take a break. They take a few hours off from the investigation and they rent a horse and buggy and they drive out into the country. And Sherlock uses this as an opportunity to do some thinking out loud and bring Watson up to speed. He starts out by saying that the preliminary hearing only served to strengthen his belief that Lizzie was complicit in the murders. And he's amazed at her behavior. Not just her decision to testify at the inquest, but also her composure in the face of all this horrific and incriminating testimony. And nothing seems to rattle her. He compares her reaction to the reaction of the county coroner, Dr. Dolan, the man who walked into the house a little before noon and saw Mr. Borden's body, saw the face that had been hacked beyond recognition. Dolan says, it was the most ghastly thing I have ever seen. And while he's saying that, Lizzie's just looking on. You know, she's interested, but other than that, there's no emotion. She's not nervous. She's not anxious. She doesn't look upset. Sherlock proceeds to tick off all the points in support of his belief that Lizzie had to be involved in the planning and cover-up of these crimes. And I've gone over all this evidence in prior episodes, so I'm not going to spend any time doing that here. If you haven't been following the podcast from the start, if you've missed some of the episodes or you don't remember the details of Lizzie's involvement in these crimes, it might be a good idea to go back to the episode entitled Knowlton's Last Stand, because that summarizes the prosecution's view of the case. Having finished describing or listing all the reasons that he thought that the evidence pointed towards Lizzie... Sherlock and Watson can both agree that any objective, intelligent observer would have to conclude that Lizzie was involved. And that's certainly how the police and the prosecution view things. It's apparent three weeks into the case, also, that the government's going to have a very hard time convicting Lizzie without additional evidence. Even though the evidence points to her, there's critical evidence that's missing. And that is the evidence that suggests that there was an accomplice who actually wielded the hatchet while Lizzie acted as the lookout. It's pretty clear that someone else did the murders and then removed the protective clothing, bundled it up with the hatchet, and took off, left the house. And probably before leaving the house, Lizzie would have been able to inspect him, clean him up a little bit if necessary, and then he leaves the house. She goes out to the barn, hurries up to the loft, walks around for a minute or two, and then comes back and raises the alarm. This is the most obvious explanation for what happened, and it's a pretty compelling view of the case in light of the available evidence. And so Sherlock's just absolutely astounded that the police don't seem to be motivated to find the accomplice. It's like they're going to rest on the evidence they have, even though that probably isn't going to be enough to convict her. And he talks to Watson about what a bunch of incompetent losers they are. And he says the Fall River police make Scotland Yard look like a bunch of geniuses. Bottom line is, if the case is ever going to be solved, it's Sherlock who's going to do it. Now, one of the things he talks about with Watson on that day is, there had to be correspondence between Lizzie and Moriarty. If they've been together, if they've been involved with each other since June or July of 1890, which is when Lizzie headed off for Europe and first met Moriarty, when he was acting as the doctor on the ship on which he was sailing to Europe, then they've been corresponding probably off and on for uh, basically two years. Corresponded as often as a hundred times, you know, 50 letters from each of them, somewhere in that range. That is completely within the realm of possibility. He thinks that they would have written either notes or letters or a combination of the two, that that was the best and easiest way for them to communicate. He doesn't think that Moriarty settled down in Fall River. It's too small a town. He says to Watson, don't think of it as a city. Don't think of it like London. It's more like a village. If Moriarty lives in Fall River, Lizzie's going to be discovered going to visit him. Somebody's going to figure it out it's critical that he remain invisible. The only way for her and Moriarty to get away with these murders is to keep him completely unknown and invisible. And that, in turn, is going to require that he live somewhere outside Fall River. And that means that they're probably sending each other letters at least periodically. It wouldn't have been safe for them to communicate through the newspapers by placing personal ads Somebody would have noticed Lizzie, would have known her, would have known who she was. And so after the murders had taken place, somebody from the newspaper or newspapers would have come forward and said, you know, this woman, Lizzie Borden, was down here all the time placing these weird ads in the paper. That wasn't going to work. And there probably were some face-to-face visits. There may well have been many face-to-face visits in which Moriarty and Lizzie talked about their, their plans. But those had to be scheduled and arranged. And then there were times where they probably had to communicate on short notice, and that would be done by letter. They wouldn't be calling each other on the phone. The Bordens didn't have a phone to begin with, and they wouldn't have been sending telegrams back and forth. That left too obvious a trail. That would have raised alarm bells in the minds of Mr. and Mrs. Borden. It had to be done as discreetly as possible, and the most logical way was in the form of letters. So Watson says, well, maybe there were letters, but how do you know they didn't destroy them? Wouldn't that be the safest thing to do? Lizzie gets a letter from Moriarty, she reads it and she burns it. Same would apply when Moriarty gets a letter from Lizzie. But Holmes says Moriarty is the type that is going to keep the letters because he wants to have power over Lizzie. If he has letters from her, he can control her. At least it will help him to control her. If she tries to break free of him, he can say, oh, I'll just send your letters to the police or I'll send your letters to the newspapers or whatever. Holmes says, you know, the more I see of Lizzie, the more impressed I am in a kind of horrible way at her cunning, at her savvy. So she would have figured out very quickly that Moriarty was a scoundrel and not to be trusted. And she would have kept his letters for exactly the same reason. So I think these letters are still out there. Watson says, well, how are we going to get them? And Holmes says, yeah, that's the problem. First of all, we don't even know where Moriarty lives. And even if we did, we'd have to find a way to get into his house without being discovered. Let's assume that we do find Moriarty at some point. How are we going to get into the house and search it when it's empty? There's no way we can assume that's going to be possible. He may have a housekeeper or a servant or somebody who's in the house at all times when he's not there. So I'm not going to count on getting those letters in Moriarty's possession. And besides, on top of everything else, he may have taken them out of his house or out of his office and hidden them somewhere, taking them to a safe deposit box at a bank. And Watson said, well, maybe we can get Moriarty's letters and notes that were written for Lizzie and that are in Lizzie's possession. And Holmes says, yeah, that's probably a better option or a more likely scenario, but I don't think those letters are actually at the Borden home on 2nd Street because in the lead up to the murders, either Moriarty or Lizzie or both of them would have taken the precaution of moving those letters somewhere else. They would have anticipated that the house would be subjected to a pretty thorough search at some point by the police, and they wouldn't be able to know with any degree of comfort that the police would ignore letters. The police might go through the letters, any letters they found. So just to be safe, they'd have to move the letters out of the house. And the question is where they'd go. Where would Lizzie move them? Where would she store them? And Holmes says, I I really need to think about that. Even if I thought they were at the house on 2nd Street, I'm not sure I could get in there safely and search the place, because even though Bridget Sullivan doesn't work there anymore, Emma has hired a replacement. Emma is there. John Morse, the uncle, is still staying there. He's been staying there every night since the murders, and they've got this new servant. I would have to find a time when all three of them were out of the house, and I would probably need a couple of hours. I wouldn't expect to find these letters right away. I'd need to search the entire place top to bottom, possibly. For all I know, the police have the house under surveillance. If not around the clock, they may be sending officers over there at various times just to see who comes and goes. For that matter, there might be reporters who have the place staked out for the same purpose. So I don't think it would be safe for me to go over there and try to search the place. It's not just the letters between Moriarty and Lizzie that might prove critical. It's possible that there are letters between Lizzie and Emma that have valuable information. I know that Lizzie was writing to Emma when Emma was on her visit to Fairhaven during those two weeks leading up to the murder. And there may be other correspondence from earlier periods, including the 19 weeks that Lizzie was on her European tour, where she talks about Moriarty where she gives us some information about him or gives Emma information about him that we could access if we could only get our hands on those letters. But that brings us back to the problem of where they are and how I would have the opportunity to search for them. And so that brings Sherlock to his next point, which is that in order to solve the case, he may have to take a huge risk and approach either Emma or John Morse to ask for their cooperation. That would require him to expose himself, to come clean to a large degree, tell them who he really is, what he's doing there, why he needs to know this, give them his theory of the case, tell them that he thinks Lizzie's involved with this guy who is, regardless of whatever name he's adopted, who is a Moriarty. That's an enormous risk for a number of reasons. One of them is that Emma may already know about Moriarty. Lizzie may have told her. Morse may know. And if they know, they might immediately run to Moriarty and tell him, there's this guy who's looking for you and he wants information and he's asking us to cooperate and he wants to see your letters to Lizzie. And that would be a terrible risk because Moriarty would then have the advantage of knowing who they were and probably knowing where to find them. And Sherlock and Watson, on the other hand, would not have the same type of information as to Moriarty's whereabouts. So there's a huge potential risk in going to them. And then Sherlock starts talking about this particular piece of evidence that has been in his mind for a few days, and it has to do with some testimony that he heard at the preliminary hearing. In particular, what he's referencing is that the neighbor to the south of the Borden home, Mrs. Kelly, testified that as Mr. Borden was walking up the sidewalk and turning towards the front door of the Borden home... Shortly before he was murdered, she saw him holding a package, a small package in his hand. She said it was about five inches square and an inch deep, and it was wrapped in paper. Along the same lines, Bridget testified that she saw Mr. Borden holding a similar package. And then it seems to disappear. The police don't talk about it. None of the witnesses who come into the home after the murders are discovered, they don't talk about it. It just disappears. And Sherlock suspects that it has something to do with the crimes. And he asks Watson, what do you think might have been in it? Watson makes these guesses that Sherlock rejects and goes, no, I don't think so. No, I don't think so. Watson says, well, what do you think? And Sherlock says, I think it may have contained some of the letters that we've just been talking about. I think Mr. Borden may have somehow come across some letters from Moriarty to Lizzie. There are all kinds of ways it might have happened. And then having discovered them, he went into her bedroom and searched it when she wasn't there, found the entire stash, and then took a handful of them away from the house to study them, hoping that Lizzie wouldn't notice that they were gone. Think about it for a second. Moriarty would not have identified himself in the letters. He probably wouldn't even have dated the letters. He would have made them as vague as possible. They would have been worded cryptically, but... At the same time, there would have obviously been many disturbing aspects to these letters. If they weren't dated or signed, that's troubling. There would probably be references to meeting times and places. There might be statements or phrases along the lines of, it's time to act. I think we need to move quickly or, or something along those lines. So it would have raised some concerns for Mr. Borden. Now, Probably if Mr. Borden had come across these letters and they were written and constructed in the way that Sherlock suspected, it wouldn't have led Mr. Borden to think he was about to be murdered. It would probably have caused him to think that Lizzie was involved in some kind of affair, probably with a married man. So Sherlock's spinning this theory out, and that's all it is. It's just a theory. But he says, I don't know what else to think about this package because it disappears. And I don't know what else would fit in it. It wasn't a will. It wasn't the right size for a will. I think there's a good chance that Lizzie found out that her father had taken some letters, that he had taken them off somewhere so he could study them, that he was kind of building up the courage to confront her, that he was going to bring the letters back and say, don't lie to me, here they are, don't try to deny it, I want answers. And that what Lizzie may have done is notified Moriarty right away and said, I've got some letters missing. I think my father took them. What do I do? Moriarty would have said, tell your father that you know he has the letters. Tell him that you want to come clean. Say that you've been having an affair with a married man, that you've broken it off, that you'll never see him again. And tell your father that if he's willing to sit down with you and return the letters to you so that you can destroy them along with all the other letters, that you'll answer any questions. Set it up for a specific day and I'll come, we'll act. We'll do what we've been talking about all this time. We'll get it over with. This is forcing our hand. I know you had always been somewhat reluctant to carry through on this. You couldn't quite bring yourself to do it. We're going to have to do it and we have to do it fast. Set up the day, set up the time, get him to bring those letters back. Get me into the house. I'll kill your stepmother. And then as soon as those letters are back in the house we'll kill your father. And in the meantime, we'll work out all the details, but this is what we have to do. So that's Sherlock's tentative theory. And that's all it is. It's just a theory because he doesn't have any specific evidence to back it up. Among other things, it shows how important it was for him to get access to these letters because without them, all he's going to do is spin theories like the one that I just summarized for you. We have more to talk about in the next episode. We'll talk about the next stages of the investigation. And I hope you join me for that. And until then, take care.